Hello everybody, this is Dan Trout of Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to begin on John chapter 5. Our context is this. In chapter 4, the last part of chapter 4, we see Jesus having left Samaria on his way to Galilee. Why was he in Samaria? Well, he had left Judea and Perea. He had left down there in the south because John the Baptist had been arrested and Jesus was fleeing from the political heat that he was sure to feel, or the religious heat, I guess you should say, from the religious leaders at Jerusalem. He stopped by in Samaria to have that great evangelistic session with the Samaritan woman, and then he went probably to Nazareth, got rejected at Nazareth. That's not recorded in John. And then he went to Cana, where he healed the nobleman's son who had a son lying sick at Capernaum for his second sign miracle. And then he goes back to Galilee to begin his great Galilean ministry, as John, as A.T. Robertson styles it. Now, lots of things were done in Galilee that John doesn't record. He left it out because Matthew, Mark, and Luke had probably already put it in there. I'm going to read those things that he left out, that John left out. The first tour of Galilee with the four fishermen and the call of Matthew, the Sabbath controversy in Jerusalem and in Galilee, the choice of the Twelve and the Sermon on the Mount, the spread of Christ's influence and the inquiry from John in prison, the second tour of Galilee, now with the Twelve, and the intense hostility of the Pharisees, the great group of parables with the visit to Gerasa and to Nazareth, the final visit to Nazareth, the third tour of Galilee, following the Twelve, and the effect on Herod Antipas. So you see there's a lot that John has left out. We've already covered that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. However, there is one little incident that that John does record during the midst of this great Galilean ministry, because Jesus, while he was in Galilee, went down to Jerusalem for a feast, and he healed an invalid at the pool of Bethesda on Saturday and gave some very valuable discourses, theological discourses, really, in John chapter 5. So we're going to do John chapter 5, taking up that trip to Jerusalem. Now, we can't do the whole chapter in this audio. I'm going to cut it at the end of verse 23. We'll call this audio, Jesus Heals the Invalid at the Pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. In our next audio, we'll do 24 through 29, which is where Jesus talks about spiritual and physical resurrection. And then perhaps in a third audio, maybe in the second audio, depends on how much time it takes me. I'm going to do verses 30 through 47, where Jesus gives a a discourse on witnesses to himself. So let's start now with John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And oh, would that John had told us what this Jewish festival was. It turns out, for New Testament scholars, it's a big controversy. If it's a Passover, if it's a Passover, then Jesus' ministry lasted between three and four years. If it's not a Passover, Jesus' ministry was between two and three years. I'm going to assume it's a Passover because I've always heard that Jesus' ministry was three and a half years, and that just seems to fit better, but it's impossible to know. The NIV Study Bible says that this issue, its only significance is to determine the number of Passovers in Jesus' ministry. If this, is, if this feast in John 5, 1 is a Passover, then that means he went to four Passovers because John explicitly mentions three other Passovers, one in John chapter 2, one in John chapter 6, and the third Passover twice, in John 11 and John 12, at least twice. And so you see three other Passovers are mentioned, and if this is a Passover, that means Jesus had to have ministered for at least three and a half years. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, what feast? 
No question is more divided the harmonist of the Gospels, and the duration of our Lord's ministry may be said to hinge on it. Well, who cares how long his ministry was? It might have some relevance for those who are deep in the New Testament studies, working on their Ph.D. for something. Okay, now the after this, of course, refers to all those events in Galilee, which I've already mentioned. I've read off to you all these ministry events in the great Galilean ministry. Now, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Up is because Jerusalem is high on a hill compared to everywhere else in Israel. He went up to Jerusalem. All Jewish males had to go to one festival once a year. Now, that's what the NIV Study Bible says. Now, it's interesting. I looked up Deuteronomy 16.16, 16, the relevant legal regulation here, and it says three times a year, not once, but three times a year on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on the Feast of Weeks, and on the Feast of Booths, that's Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkoth, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Well, that sounds like you're supposed to go three times a year. But what the Jews did as time went on, they interpreted all your males, all your males shall appear before the Lord. They interpreted that as a group, not all your males individually, but all your males as a group of Jewish men shall appear before the Lord. So that means that three times a year there will be a group of Jewish male pilgrims in Jerusalem, and you, Simon or Abraham or Peter, you individual Jews are not necessarily going to be in that crowd. And so as time went on, it was expected that maybe they could show up once a year and a time after that, maybe once every few years or even once in a lifetime. This is according to a Jewish website I found. I assume that's true. But at any rate, it was expected at least once a year, most probably at this time, that the Jews would go up to Jerusalem. And Jesus, being a good Jew, went up to Jerusalem to the feast, whichever feast it might have been. John chapter 5, verse 2. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Now, the sheep gate, if you look at a map, I'm looking at a map right now, is right to the north of the temple complex, right outside the court of Gentiles. On the wall there, sheep were brought into the city through there. I assume that's where it got its name. And right north of the Sheep Gate, a little bit to the west, but not much, is the Pool of Bethesda. This is according to a map that captures the time, 20 B.C. to 70 A.D., so that's pretty accurate. Nehemiah 3.1 mentions the sheep, gat, sheep Gate. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests began rebuilding the Sheep Gate. They dedicated it and installed its doors. Sheep were brought into the city and into the temple through that gate. And the reason the sheep were brought into the temple, of course, was for sacrifice. So it was very convenient because it's right next to the temple. Now, this pool of Bethesda has its name from Bethesda, which means house of mercy or house of grace. Got its name from the cures that were performed there. We're going to talk about a little bit later how those cures were performed. Now, notice it's John chapter 5, verse 2 says, By the sheep gate in Jerusalem there is a pool. Well, that indicates that John wrote the gospel before Jerusalem fell in AD 70, because after AD 70, when the Romans destroyed the city, there was not a pool. But the NIV Study Bible says that that present tense isn't enough proof to show that John wrote the book before AD 70. I don't know why they say that, because I really believe that's when he wrote it. John Gill, in order to preserve a late date for the authorship of the book of John, says that the, the pool might have survived the destruction I don't think so. I doubt very seriously after 
The Romans came in and burnt the city to the ground. I find it hard to believe that the city would that the pool would still be there. So I think this is a clear indication that this gospel has an early date. Remember A. T. Robertson, the great liberal I should say A. T. Robinson, not Robertson. Robertson's the harmonist. Robinson is the liberal guy who apparently got conservative at the end of his life. He started dating the Gospels and all the books of the New Testament earlier and earlier and earlier until he had every one of them before 8070. So that's that's a little side note that doesn't really affect what we're talking about here. We go to John 5, verses 3 through 6. Within these lay a large number of the sick. Within what? The five colonnades. That pool, by the way, it was a double pool, a twin pool, and it had four colonnades around the four edges. And then a, a, the fifth colonnade split the two pools, so it made a twin pool. And that's why it had five colonnades. And verses 3 says, within these, within these five colonnades lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And now I'm going to read you a bracketed portion of the text here. This part in the brackets is called by, in the NIV margin as a reading from less important manuscripts. The NIV study Bible says verse 4 was doubtless inserted by later copyists to explain why people waited by the pool in large numbers. So... The NIV Study Bible does not think the text is genuine, and so, but we're going to read it anyway. Waiting for the moving of the water, the blind, lame, and the paralyzed, starting right here. Waiting for the moving of the water, because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up, recovered from whatever ailment he had. End of the text that has not a very good textual authority. Well, let's just assume for the sake of argument that it's in the text right now. First of all, let's talk about these paralyzed people waiting for the moving of the water. It's not easy to see them waiting all year round. It was probably only at festival time, one of the three festivals. This is according to Lightfoot, and I think he's right. It makes sense. They were waiting at festival time. Now, why were they lying there? Because they were paralyzed. They couldn't move the man that Jesus healed. Well, let me go ahead and read, uh, finish reading the passage here. Verse 5. One man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? First of all, how did Jesus know he'd been lying there for a long time? He could have just carried on a conversation with him and find out and John didn't record it or he might have supernaturally known. We don't know. doesn't really matter. He was lying there because he was an invalid. He was, he was paralyzed. Now, Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? Why would Jesus ask the beggar? The beggar didn't ask. Well, here's some speculations from the NIV study Bible. A beggar could lose a profitable and easy income if he were cured, and so therefore he didn't ask to be cured, and not to mention the fact he didn't know who Jesus was and that Jesus could cure him. Remember now, Jesus probably went down there not as the Messiah, the great teacher with millions of people following him. He went down there probably secretly. So the man didn't know that Jesus could cure him. Another possibility on adding to this NIV study Bible says that Jesus knew the man had lost the will to be cured he'd been lying they'd been trying for 38 years and so hey if it hadn't happened in 38 years it's not going to happen here in year number 39 and so Jesus prompted the man to help him to get expectations of cure it could have been Jesus was trying to fasten details upon himself so that people would see that he had the power to heal it could have been, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, that Jesus wanted the man to detail his sickness, to tell all the details, the particulars, to, to thus make him feel entirely helpless and dependent on Jesus. In other words, the man would say, I can't walk. I haven't been able to walk in 38 years. I'm a miserable wreck. I'm helpless. And Jesus said, ah, but I'm here. 
and I can make you well. All of that is perfectly reasonable, reasonable speculations. Now let's look at this angel that supposedly came into the pools from time to time and stirred up the water. I remember as a young Christian, as a young man, even as a boy, reading that verse and thinking, what in the world does that mean? Well, here's some options. I've got five options. We'll discuss this thoroughly. Remember now, this might not even be in the text. This is a part of the of the text here that's doubtful. First option, the be- the sacrificial beast uh, that were offered for sacrifice, they were washed in that pool right north of the temple. And the angel, Angelos, is a messenger, not, not, necess- not a, a spiritual angel, but a, a human being, was a man who was sent to stir up the corrupt sediment at the bottom of the pool. The sediment would then penetrate the pores of the sick person, which would bring about a cure. Well, that's absolutely, in my humble opinion, ridiculous. Adam Clark says it's ridiculous, too. He thought that was absurd. He said, quote, this is a miserable shift to get rid of the power and goodness of God. Built on the merest conjectures, self-contradictory, in every way as unlikely as it is unsupportable, insupportable. It has never yet been satisfactorily proved that the sacrifices were ever washed. And even could this be proved, who can show that they were washed in the pool of Bethesda? These waters healed a man in a moment of whatever disease he had. So we're going to get rid of the rationalist explanation for it right off the top. Here's another explanation. The angel that started the pool was a messenger sent from the Sanhedrin in order to cure. He comes from the Sanhedrin. He stirs us. I guess he sticks a stick in the water or something and stirs it up and says, time to get cured. Well, how's this messenger from the Sanhedrin going to cure anybody? Adam Clark denies that, too. I'm just showing you this to show you how people get exercised over this angel, this stirring up angel. Now, here's a straightforward explanation from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. It was an actual angel that caused healing. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, if the text here be genuine, and as I pointed out, it's, a question, it's questionable, there can be no doubt of the miracle, as there were multitudes living when this gospel was published, who from their own knowledge of Jerusalem could have exposed the falsehood of the evangelist if no such cure had been known there. In other words, if John goes around saying that an angel stirred up, that the Jews said that an angel stirred up the pool and people got healed every year, well, people would have known about that because, because it was public knowledge. And, but, no, but John wouldn't have stated something that would have been so easily contradicted if it hadn't been true. Okay, well, we're getting, that's a possibility, but here's an option four. There was no angel because the text is not in the original autographs, and to me, that's the answer right there. I think this is not, we don't need to be worrying about this because this is not in the original text. Now, here's an, an idea suggested by Barnes. It's not exactly what Barnes, the commentator Barnes, said, but this is what I got from it. Waters periodically bubbled up because of the influx from the spring. There was a spring feeding this pool, and it was not a a smooth flow. Every now and then it would just rush, and the the bubbles would come up, and then the people superstitiously said it was an angel. And the pool itself would have healing properties, because lots of pools all throughout history have healing properties. People always go into pools, hot sulfur springs in Virginia, if you recall that one, in the south. For years, people used to go there. I remember uh, right before the war between the states, the big-shot Yankees and big-shot Confederates would go to that pool and discuss things with each other while they relaxed in the hot waters. Well, I think the easiest thing to do is just to say, hey, it's not in the text, so let's don't worry about it. Now, what about this detail that the man had been lying there for 38 years? This shows that there could be no collusion between Jesus and the sick man because the sick man was well-known. He'd been there for 38 years. That means everybody knew about the sick man who'd been lying there for 38 years. 
So Jesus could not have come up to some stranger and says, hey, I'm going to work a fake miracle. I'll pay you off if you'll go along with it. I want you to pretend that you're paralyzed. Then I want you to get up and say that you've been healed. Jesus never did healings like that. All of his healings were easily attestable to make it easy for apologetic and witnessing purposes to show that the miracle actually had been done and that he was the Messiah. Jesus probably, another point to be made about the 38 years, is Jesus probably especially picked that man because he'd been there for so long. He was probably the most pitiful case there and he wanted to show the most mercy. Now you might, some cynic might say, well, why did he pick that one? Why didn't he heal them all there? You hear cessationists say that a lot of times. Oh, you got healed? What about all the other people that got sick or that didn't get healed? That shows that the healing never occurred. Nonsense. Jesus, When Jesus shows mercy to some, he's not obligated to show mercy to everybody else. I mean, every good Calvinist at least ought to know that, especially cessationist Calvinist. We go to verse 7 in John chapter 5. Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Now, the stirring up of the pool is, the angel might have been part of that spurious text, but not the stirring up of the pool that happened. And again, I think that's because the, the spring bubbled up every now and then, and the people got in their heads that, the, hey, this is when you get healed, when the, when the water's moving. The man said, I don't have a man. That means I don't have a servant to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up. Somebody always gets ahead of me because he's paralyzed. He can't move. Now, of course, the sick man did not yet see Jesus as a potential healer. He was focused on the curative effect of the water, as the NIV study Bible points out. But boy, if he knew who he was talking to, that was his blessed day. John 5, verses 8 through 10. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. What a surprise that must have been. 9. Instantly the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath, it's illegal for you to pick up your mat. What SOBs these people were. The man's been paralyzed for 38 years, he's miraculously healed, and he'd probably crying, crying his eyes out for joy, and the Jews pick on him because he picked up his mat on the Sabbath, and that's working. Working. Oh, that's a lot of working, isn't it? Picking up your mat, according to their stupid, idiotic traditions of men. Of course, this was not in the Mosaic Law. Of course, it was not illegal, according to the Law of Moses, to pick up your mat after you've been miraculously healed, or even if you hadn't been healed. The Pharisees were narrow-minded, pig-headed idiots. All right, let's go back to the interesting detail that the man showed no faith before he was healed. Now, usually, Jesus, usually people Jesus healed showed faith before they were healed. The NIV Study Bible here points out that this is not the case. In this instance, the man showed no faith. Now, of course, it would be hard for the man to show faith. The man didn't even know who Jesus was. Uh, John 5:13, which is three verses later, says this, but the man who was cured did not know who it was, who, who it was that had healed him, because Jesus had slipped away from the crowd that was there. Now, the NIV Study Bible points out that Jesus usually healed in response to faith, and that's absolutely true. We look at the example of the paralytic let down through the roof of the house at Capernaum. The friends of that paralytic let him down through the roof. And if you look, read the three passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it said, because of their faith, he healed them because of their faith. Well, the NIV study Bible points out that Jesus was not limited to healing people that showed faith. He could heal people that didn't show any faith. And that's absolutely true here because this man showed no faith. He was just blessed out of his socks. And, you know, it's the same thing about salvation. You can say, well, why did God save that SOB over there or that murderer that was in prison? You, you've got no business telling God who he can save and who he can't save. 
somebody shows no faith by living a lousy life and all of a sudden God wants to reach down to that person and, and get him to repent and save him, well, hey, that's his business, not yours. Now, why did Jesus order the man to walk? Well, according to Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, it was in order to attest the miracle. Jesus often connected something with his miracles for purposes of attestation, as Adam Clark says. And this, this is a big deal with me. Let me give you some examples. The wine in Cana. When the wine in Cana was changed from water to wine, Jesus, or some of the wine, I can't remember if Jesus ordered it, but in the story, the wine was taken to the steward who attested to the wine's quality and said, whoa, this wine's better than, any, than most banquets' wine because most banquets have the lousy wine at the end. Your wine is good. And so now we have somebody attesting to the fact that a miracle was done. How about the miracle of the five loaves? Jesus ordered the leftover fragments to be collected and counted so that we can say, see, there we started out with five, and now we've got 12 baskets full or whatever. How about when he cured lepers? He told them to go to the priest in Jerusalem. It was their business to judge whether the cure had been effected according to the Mosaic ritual. And then when they were cured, there would be public testimony that the miracle had been done. So Jesus was being on a test of miracles, and this is what's the problem with so many charismatic miracles. I believe that these many of these miracles are taking place. I don't deny that some of them are fake, of course, or even psychosomatically induced and all that kind of stuff. Sure, that's possible, but I guarantee you there's some things that can't be psychosomatically induced or faked, and if charismatics would take the trouble to set up a situation where it's obvious that the miracle was done and John MacArthur can't cavil at the miracle and you've got testimony and witnesses, doctor's reports, whatever it takes to attest the miracle because miracles are a powerful, powerful witness to the truth of the gospel. Now, this stupid rabbinic law I just told you about that you can't pick up your mat on the Sabbath. Uh, as I mentioned, it was not according to the law of Moses that you couldn't do that. It was illegal according to the traditions of the rabbis, as the NIV study Bible points out. Jesus never broke the law of Moses, but he loved to break the traditions of the elders. And Jameson Fawcett Brown say that he deliberately in broke the traditions of the elders right here, on, on purpose. And those commentators say that he did this so that when opposition arose, people would be impelled to listen to his teachings. Who is this guy causing such a uproar over there? He broke the rabbi's laws. Maybe we better listen to this guy. Now, of course, it was illegal because he allegedly did work on the Sabbath, but the Mosaic prohibitions against work on the Sabbath was talking about useful labor, your livelihood type of work, not picking up a mat. John 5, 11 through 13, he, Jesus, replied, excuse me, he, the healed invalid, replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? They, the Jewish leaders, asked. But the man who was cured did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Now, why were the Jewish leaders asking who the man was that healed the invalid and asked him to pick up his walk? Was it idle curiosity? Oh, no. They were looking for t evidence that they could condemn Jesus with for breaking the Sabbath. It shows what SOBs they were. I suspect that they might have even known who had done the miracle but didn't know where he was. I, it's, doesn't, it's not really clear how many miracles Jesus had done around this time, at least not that I know of. So maybe Jesus had not gotten a reputation that he later got in his ministry, but they might have already suspected Jesus. If not, they were looking for, they knew that somebody had healed him. Somebody had asked that man to pick up his man on the Sabbath, and they wanted to find him. Now, Jesus slipped away, and this is no doubt to avoid exposing himself to the malice of the Jewish rulers that early in his ministry, according to the NIV Study Bible. That would have ruined his ministry. He's still got, he's still got about probably three years to go, assuming a three-and-a-half-year ministry. 
Verses 14 and 15 in John chapter 5. After this, Jesus found him, the healed invalid. Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that, so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, now the man knows who it was because Jesus found him. He had slipped away and the man didn't know who he was. And now the man did know and he immediately goes to report to the authorities. I guess he was worried about disobeying their rules or maybe 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 he wanted to actually get jesus condemned as a violator of the sabbath i don't believe that john gill suggests that and then denies it that would have certainly been ungrateful to the man who had healed him john gill speculates the reason that he went that the healed man went to the sanhedrin was so that jesus might have the glory of the cure so that the Jews would believe that Jesus was the Messiah, like the healed man now believes. And he was probably naive, according to Jameson Fawcett and Brown. He had no idea how unwelcome this testimony would be, because the animus of the Jews had not yet been manifested. Now you notice in verse 15, when he makes his report, the man went and reported that it was Jesus who had made him well. He emphasized the main point, that he had been healed. He didn't emphasize the picking up of the mat on the Sabbath, because that was utterly irrelevant to him, not to the Jewish leaders, however. Now, when Jesus saw him there, he had something more to tell him. He said, don't sin anymore. Now, why did he tell him that? One speculation is that the man had probably led a profligate life before the cure. And so he's saying, hey, you've seen a miracle of God, so now you know the power of God, so now you need to know the righteousness of God, so don't sin. And this is application point time here. You know, when you heal, pray for somebody to be healed, always bring the gospel in with it. I mean, healings point people to Jesus faster than anything in the world. I've told this story a million times. Well, I'll tell you, I, I was going to tell one of my stories. I'll tell you another story of a friend of mine, a roommate in college. He had a friend of his who was not really a believer. He was a churchgoer, a Baptist, cultural Christian going off to the university during the hippie 60s time. And the guy got sick as a dog. I never heard anybody with his nose running so bad he could barely talk. It was His throat was rumbling and his lungs were gagging with mucus. He was just in a terrible way. And I didn't know this guy, but my roommate is a good friend of mine. He did know him and, and was talking to him on the phone and says, So you're really sick, huh? Yeah. He said, Well, come over here and we'll pray for you. And the guy took him up on it. So the guy shows up. And he sits down at my roommate's desk and... My roommate and I are talking to him about his spiritual condition. Mainly my roommate was talking to him because he knew him. And the guy, you know, he was not a believer, not, not saved. And, and I'm thinking, gee, ooh, the guy wants us to pray for him, but he is so sick. I just don't know. I don't know if we should pray right now. And my roommate, who had more faith than I did, said, well, do you want us to pray for you now? And the guy said, yeah. So we go over there and we prayed for him, speaking in tongues. We prayed for him, prayed that he would be healed. And then we went back to our respective beds and just looked at him. I didn't know what to think. <laughs> and that guy, he's got his head still bowed from the prayer, and he's looking down at the ground, and I could see him sniffing left nostril, perfectly clear. Sniffing the right nostril, perfectly clear. Then he sniffs with both nostrils, perfectly clear. Then he starts talking, no more catching, no more mucus in his lungs, perfectly clear. He was perfectly all right, instantly. And so... So, so that, that that guy, that Baptist guy says, you've been messing around with this Holy Ghost stuff. You know, he knew that God had healed him because there was no explanation for it. 
And so, of course, my friend told him about the Lord. You know, it was a great chance to witness after that. So Jesus had healed this guy, but he wanted more than that. He wanted him to say, hey, don't sin. In other words, get healed spiritually as well as getting healed physically. They go together. Verses 16 and 17 of John chapter 5. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, there's an indication that he did more than just one miracle. Was doing. Sounds like a progressive tense that he was in the habit of, the custom of healing people on the Sabbath. And I think that's probably true. And so that means the Jews might have had some idea who this guy was that healed the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus, but Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. Now, Jesus really pours fuel on the fire. He's being persecuted. We don't know how, what form. Here's some options. Could it be just with the reviling tongues, John Gill says, or they could actually be trying to kill him, as it actually says, as the Scripture says in John 5:18, the very next verse. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. That might have been after this. It might have been before. We don't know. But they, anyway, they were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things. And not only because he was healing people on the Sabbath and allegedly breaking the Sabbath, but then Jesus responded to them, responded to them my father is still working. He called God his father. Ooh, that was to the Jews a blasphemous claim. That was probably worse than working on the Sabbath by lifting up a mat. Now, the Jews never said my father. That was too intimate. They might have used that phrase in a prayer, uh, perhaps, but it, they would probably say our father in kind of an indirect, impersonal way, but just to go talk around saying my father. But Jesus was emphasizing his close relation to the father. He was the son of God, which many, many places in the scripture point out clearly that means he's divinity. He's God, just like the father is God. And so he's saying, look, my father's still working. He's doing works down here, and I'm working just like he is. I'm working... God the Father's working, and God the Son is working, and if you don't like it, tough tea bags. The law never said it was wrong to work by having compassion on the Sabbath. The law never said it was wrong to heal somebody on the Sabbath. And so God the Father loves people, and he has compassion with people on the Sabbath. And by golly, I'm going to love people and have compassion on the Sabbath, and I'm going to heal him. Heal him. That's essentially what he was saying, thus rebuking the Pharisees very, very strongly. Verse 18. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now here we see the Jews recognizing that Jesus was not claiming to be a good teacher like these airbrained liberal Protestants do. Oh, Jesus was just a good moral or ethical teacher. Nonsense. He was making himself equal with God. He was claiming to be the God, and the Pharisees knew it. The Sanhedrin knew it. One more piece of evidence that liberals don't know what the Gehenna they're talking about. Now, when he says he was calling God his own father, that phrase own, own father, indicates a special relationship with the father, as the NIV study Bible points out. They didn't mind, the Jews didn't mind the idea of God being the father of all, our father, no problem, but my father, his own father, as a special possession, ooh, they didn't like that. Now, the Jews knew that Jesus was making himself equal with God, as I just said, to say the Son of God was to say God, Psalm 2-7. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my, he the Father said to me, the Son, interpreting this phrase prophetically, you are my Son, today I have become your Father. John Gill says the Jews might have learned about Jesus' Sonship by examining that verse there in Psalm 2-7. You are my Son, today I have become your Father. Let me read a quote from John Gill on this point. They rightly understood him that he asserted his equality with him. For had he intended no more, and had they imagined that he intended no more by calling God his father, 
than that he was so by creation as he is to all men. In other words, God is the father of all men, the fatherhood of God, you know, that kind of stuff. Adolf Hitler had God as his father because God created him. If that's all he meant, or if he meant we are his children by adoptions as he adopted the Jews as a, as a race or as a, as a group of people, that's one thing. That's really not anything controversial. They would not have been so angry with him for the phrase in this sense they used themselves. They, they would call, the Jews would say that God is our father or God is the father of all men. He's the creator of all men. They used the phrase that way, but to say my own father, they understood him otherwise than saying that he's just father by adoption or father of the whole Jewish people. They understood him otherwise as asserting his proper deity and perfect equality with the father. Now, notice that when the Jews objected to Jesus calling God his own father, Jesus didn't rebuke the Jews and say, Hi, what are you talking about? I'm not making God my father. I'm not making, I'm not claiming to be equal to God. He didn't respond that way to defend himself because he knew they were exactly right. He was claiming to be the father. Paul recognized this in Romans 8.32. He did not even, he, God the Father, did not even spare his, God the Father, own son, but offered him up for us all. How his son, he offered, he did not even spare his own son. How will he not also grant us everything? Now, they were seeking to kill him. Why such a severe punishment? Well, because breaking the Sabbath was a capital crime under the Old Testament law. In Numbers 15.32, we read this. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day, dropping down to verse 36 of Numbers 15. So the entire community brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord had commanded Moses. That was a very serious command. You don't break the Sabbath. Blasphemy was also a capital crime under the Old Testament law. Remember, the Jews accused Jesus of two things. One, calling God his father. That's blasphemy, which we're going to look at now. And also working on the Sabbath. Well, he was guilty of death for working on the Sabbath. Now he's going to be guilty of death for blaspheming God by calling himself, by calling God, by calling himself equal with God. Leviticus 24:16. Whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh is to be put to death. The whole community must stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death, whether the foreign resident or the native. So Jesus managed to get himself indicted, if you will, not officially, but practically for two serious offenses, Sabbath-breaking and blasphemy, both of which were punishable by death under the Old Testament law. And that's why they were trying to kill him. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Then Jesus replied, I assure you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things in the same way. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to anyone he wants to. Now here Jesus ties himself to God the Father even more greatly. Anything the Father's doing, the Son does on his own. The Father loves the Son, shows him everything he's doing, and he will show him greater works. So everything he's doing now is what the Father wants him to do, and he's showing him greater works. He's going to do those later. And he finishes off here and says, The Father raises the dead, the Son's going to raise the dead too. He's in perfect union with the Father and the Father's will and his work. And I could drop down to verse 22. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. There's another verse that ties Jesus to the Father. All judgment's given to the Son. So judgment, resurrection from the dead, works. We'll talk about what those works might be. But the works the Father does, Jesus does. And what, in a general statement, whatever the Father does, the Son does. So you see there's a complete unity of the will of the Son with the Father, as well as the nature of the Son with the Father. 
Divine nature, one nature, different person. Father is a person, the Jesus is a person, but they both have a divine nature. All right, let's look at this verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these. Well, we have a problem here. What are the greater works and what are the, and what are the these that he's referring to? Let's talk about the these. Those, that's something that happened right then or that was accessible to the audience right then to compare with the greater works that were going to be done in the future. So the these is talking about present things. I've got four options. This is a little bit enigmatic. Here's the first option. Jesus is referring to works God the Father did in the Old Testament. This is according to John Gill. Verse 19, we see whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things. Well, what does the Father do? Well, what, is he, what has he done? Well, he redeemed Israel out of Egypt. He did the work of creation. He created the world. He did miracles in the Old Testament. And so this is, according to Gill, what Jesus referred to. Whatever God did in the past in the Old Testament, I'm doing the same thing. The present tense there would not be, it's hard to say how to explain that. For whatever the Father does... Is e it can easily be interpreted as for whatever the Father has done, whatever the Father's in the habit of doing. At any rate, that's John Gill's answer. Here's another answer of uh, greater works than these. What does the these refer to? Another option, healing the invalid at the pool. Now the commentator Barnes and John Gill say this is what it is. But it's, I got a problem with that. Greater works than these? Well, the, these, these is just one healing of the invalid at the pool. However, and this is an idea that just hit me as I talk, we know that Jesus is doing works. I just said that in verse 16. The Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. That implies that he was doing more. And so maybe the these, therefore, is the other works that he was doing on the Sabbath besides healing the lame man. I think that's a pretty good answer right there. Another commentator named Constable, and I, there's another commentator too besides him that I read. I forgot I didn't get his name. He said that the plural these referred to the healing of the invalid and the commanded him to walk on the Sabbath. In other words, greater works than healing and greater works than commanding him to pick up his mat. Well, that's all part of the same miracle. I don't see how you can split it out like that to take care of the plural. And so the last option is my option, which is that it's referring to the healings Jesus had already done in general, including the invalid at the pool. And that's what I just mentioned. Uh, and I think that's what it is because he was doing work to get the Jews upset with him to where they wanted to kill him. And so he's saying, greater works than these healing miracles I'm going to do. All right, so the healing miracles that he had done there, I think, is the best answer there. Greater works than those healing miracles that Jesus will do, God will show Jesus to do. What might they be, the greater works? Well, here's the options. Raising people from the dead. We look at verse 21. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to anyone he wants to. Resurrections from the dead. Well, that makes sense. It goes with the context. The NIV Study Bible affirms this. John Gill affirms it. The Cambridge Commentator for Schools, or whatever the name of that thing is, they affirm it. The Cambridge Commentary affirms it, and so does Ellicott. Well, that makes sense. And notice that Jesus had not resurrected the widow of Nain's son and Lazarus yet. So, so a great, and, that, and resurrecting a, a dead person is a greater work than healing somebody at the pool of Bethesda or associated miracles that were happening around there. Resurrection of the dead is greater. So that makes a lot of sense. Some people say the greater works includes the judgment of the world. We see in verse 22, we drop down to our next verse. Jesus said, the Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So, therefore, the greater work would include the judgment. Maybe so. Maybe 
raised in the dead, and the judgment together. John Gill further speculates the greater work is the redemption of the elect, getting the church saved, getting people in the church saved. It could be Jesus and the apostles' future healing ministries. He could have just been talking about healing, and he's saying, yeah, I, I, I healed this guy and some others on the Sabbath, but pretty soon I'm going to have my apostles out there, and they're going to be healing all over Galilee and Judea and Perea and Samaria and everywhere, all over the world. They're going to be healing. Could be that too. I'm not exactly sure what Jesus meant. But if we go with a strict context, it would be resurrections from the dead and judgment of the world. Now, verse 21 says, just as the Father raises the dead. Well, when did the Father raise the dead? Well, he'd done that twice already. Elijah raised the son of the widow of Sabbatah in 1 Kings 17:22, And Elisha raised the Shunammite son in 2 Kings 4, 32-35. And besides the Jews, this was a firm belief that the Jews had, according to the NIV Study Bible. They knew that the Father raised people from the dead. And they also knew, according to the NIV Study Bible, that the Father gave this privilege of resurrecting people to no one else but himself, which makes sense. That's a big miracle. And so Jesus claims himself equal to the Father. The Father raises people from the dead. So can I. The Father also gives life. Now, if you take it as a strict parallel, just as the Father raises the dead, so the Son also raises the dead. So, so also the Son resurrects people, anybody he wants to, and that would make it refer to physical resurrections from the dead. For example, the widow of Nain's son and Lazarus. That would assume a tight parallel between the first part of the verse and the last part of the verse. John Gill says it's that, resurrections in this life. For example, the widow of Nain's son and Lazarus. The NIV study Bible and John Gill suggests that perhaps he's referring to future resurrections. Greater works than these, the father raises the dead, also the son gives life by raising the dead at the end of the world. The future resurrection. NIV study Bible and John Gill hold to that. Or here's a third option. Jesus is referring, when he says he gives life, he's referring to the abundant Christian life on this earth, not physical resurrection, but spiritual resurrection. Those two concepts are so closely related, spiritual and physical re resurrection, especially in this chapter, as we'll see in the next audio, it's hard to separate them out. So I just like to run them all together and say, yeah, the Father raised from the dead, and that's a symbol of all the life that the Son can give. He can give spiritual life to us. He can raise us. He can resuscitate people from the dead who have died in this life and bring them back to this life. Or he can bring people to life in glory and give them the, their eternal glorified body, anybody he wants to. That's how close the Father is with the Son. That's how much power the Son has. The Father raises the dead. Well, by golly, the Son can raise the dead too. And we can quibble over what it means to give life. I just like to run it all together and say he gives all kind of life, spiritual life, temporary resuscitated life on this planet, or glorified body at the end of the world. Now, this life that we're going to get as believers, Jesus gives to anyone he wants to. Now, I can't help but think about the Calvinist-Arminian controversy there because it sounds like Jesus wills to give life only to those who he wants to. In other words, he actually chooses who he wants to give life to. Well, we know from basic scriptural Augustinian doctrine that we don't get saved because of what we choose. We get saved because of God chooses us. We do not choose him, but God chooses us. That's standard doctrine, unless you're an Arminian. And so that's not a problem for the Calvinists. If you're an Arminian, though, how would you handle that? Well, I read an, a commentator somewhere that says, well, he gives life to everyone he wants to, but he doesn't give, but the person he wants to give life to is the person who has first chosen him. In other words, Jesus doesn't want to give life to somebody who doesn't choose him first. So an Arminian can wiggle away out of that verse if he so desires. I don't desire to do that. We go to verses 22 and 23, and we'll shut this audio down. 
The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, this is one uh, one more way that Jesus identifies himself with the Father. The Father resurrects, Jesus resurrects. The Father judges, Jesus judges. Except that it says the Father, in fact, judges no one. And we're going to have to talk about that because that sounds like a contradiction. But what we're going to see is, is that what it means is the Father judges no one by himself. He shares in that judgment with the Son. So the Son is intimately connected with the Father in all of the works of the Father. Healings resurrections, judgment, you name it, the Son can do it too, just like the Father. The Son is fully divine. So the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son so that all people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Just as the Father needs honor, so does the Son need honor. And by the way, have you heard these people? Well, I don't believe in Jesus, but I believe in God. Practically every philosopher in the last 300 years, the ones that still believe in God, especially back in the 16, 17, 1800s. They didn't want to get rid of God, but they sure wanted to get rid of Jesus, and they wanted to get rid of the Bible, and they're constantly trying to reason their way to God, like Descartes, for example. They want to reason their way to God, but they want to throw out the Bible, and they want to throw out Jesus. That is nonsense. You don't honor the Son. You don't honor God, not by coming up with some philosophical notion of what God is, the unmoved mover. You got to, If you want to honor God the Father, you have to honor the Son. Now, of course, the Jews believed that the Father was the judge of the world, so Jesus' teaching here was heretical to them. And one more reason to get them upset with Jesus. Now, let's talk about this fact where it says the Father, in fact, judges no one. Well, we know darn well he judges. He judges. The Father does judge. He's the judge of all the earth. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah and so forth. But here's the options to solve that problem. Jesus meant here that the Father judges no one without the Son. In other words, the Father, in fact, judges no one alone or merely or better than that, in my opinion, that's Gill and Clark come up with that option. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say the Father judges through the Son. And the Father, in fact, judges no one individually or alone, but has given, but through the Father has given all judgment to the Son. The Son is the Father's voluntary agent. I think that's the easiest way to explain that. Now, here's an interesting problem. All judgment is given to the Son. That's what it says here in verse 22. How do you reconcile that with verses that say that the Son does not judge? For example, John 3:17. For God did not send his Son into the world that he might judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. There you have a, a verse that says, Jesus didn't come here to judge the world, and yet that's in John 3:17. And John two chapters later says, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. That sounds like a blatant contradiction. Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, you can assume John is stupid enough within two chapters to write a blatant contradiction like that. Of course not. Only a dumb liberal would say something like that. So how do we reconcile? It's very easy. Jesus' ministry in this life is not to judge the world. If we read John 3.18, we read this. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, or judge is the word. Already judged. You're already judged if you don't believe in Jesus. So Jesus doesn't need to come into the world to judge you because you're already judged just by the fact of you being born. You're judged. You're born under judgment. Why is this person already condemned? Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So he's already judged, so Jesus doesn't need to do that in this life. However, at the end of the world, he does need to do judgment. Acts 17.31, because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. This is Paul the inspired apostle talking to the philosophical Greeks at Mars Hill in Athens, he says, there is, God has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man, that would be Jesus, he is appointed. 
He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. John 5:27. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the son of man. John 5:27 is four verses from now, which and it's going to be in our next audio, but I'll bring it up here to show that Jesus has been given the right to pass judgment. But Acts 17 shows that this judgment is at the end of the world. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. That's how I reconcile those two verses. It's interesting to me. I looked at a lot of commentaries to come up with an answer on this. And it's really it's amazing how many times you look at a commentary and these big shots don't think about something to me that's quite obvious, a problem. I need some answers, and they don't have the answers. I actually asked a pastor in Wenzhou, China, and he helped me with this. He said he looked at it and looked at it and came back with him about a week later and he gave me the answer there that that's probably how you reconcile it. And I think he's exactly right. So that's what we're going to go with. All right. Next audio, we will listen to Jesus talk about spiritual and physical resurrection. He's already talking about here the Father Father resurrects and the Son gives life. And then he's going to talk about giving life, both physically and spiritually, in the next few verses, 24 through 29. Since I don't have enough time to do that, we're going to do that in a separate audio. So we'll see you then, and I hope you enjoyed this audio. 